Welcome to this special edition of the Nordic Talks podcast, recorded at the recent COP28 in Dubai. At this climate conference, we tried something new. We gave the word solely to the next generation. We asked youth delegates from Nordic countries to invite speakers from different parts of the world, people who've given their lives to the climate movement. In this session, you'll meet climate activist Rose Kubosinga for a conversation on how to tackle the triple planetary crisis we are currently facing, the crisis of biodiversity loss, climate change and pollution. I'm Josefine Folkvarts, and I'm handing over the microphone to the host of this episode, the Swedish youth delegate Alice Jimbro Frisk. So I'll start with introducing myself. My name is Alice. I'm one of the two youth delegates for Sweden in the Swedish delegation. But I'm also for a long time been active in climate activism in uh, Fridays for Future, Climate Live and other groups, grassroots organizations in Sweden. And this is my first COP ever. So I'm Not very used to these kind of settings, but I'm excited to be here together with Rose. Would you like to introduce yourself? Yes. Oh, thank you, Alice, for the invitation. And uh, really good to see everyone and being considered at the Nordic Pavilion. Uh, my name is Rose Kopsinge. I'm a climate justice activist from Uganda, and I focus on issues of migration, refugees, and climate change. But my education background all throughout from my undergraduate, my master's, and now my PhD is in climate change. And I'm uh, really excited to speak about planetary boundaries because I had the opportunity to be taught by Ketra Wath. I don't know if you know Ketra Wath. Uh, she's the author of the Donut Economics. Uh, at the, and she also teaches at the University of Oxford where I did my master's. So really excited to speak with everyone and whoever will be listening. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> And uh, this will also become a podcast, so for those that are not present in the room, but that will be listening, welcome to you as well. So I thought we would start with, since you said that you're an activist, mm. what, um, how w did your activism start? What inspired you to become active in the climate movement? Well, uh, that is a big question. I can <laughs> talk about it for two weeks until the end of COP. But uh, yeah, as I mentioned, I'm from Uganda. I was born in a little village in uh, the west of the country, uh, in Chenjojo, and then I grew up in the next smaller town, not a town, a village actually, in Fort Porto. And um, like my parents are subsistence farmers. I don't know if you guys know what subsistence farming is, but we grow food for home consumption, but they also work in a tea factory that produces tea leaves. So I remember like, you know, my mom used to work, she still works in this factory actually, still works in the factory as a, uh, an employee. And I remember vividly like each time we had massive droughts, not even massive, but any droughts, should be among the first ones to be laid off from work. And for me, I didn't know why. And it started happening like twice a year, thrice a year, you know, 
At least it never went beyond three times because we have like four seasons in Uganda. Mm. But three times to be laid off work, like at home for two months or even three is a big deal because it, it affects your children's education, mm. like the kind of schools they go to. It affects, um, you know, the food. It affects everything. Anyway, I didn't know why the droughts were increasing. Like one drought in a few years is okay. But I think when the frequency starts increasing mm -hmm. and then they become massive droughts, that becomes kind of a problem. So I didn't, I used to engage in, you know, environmental stuff as a child in the wildlife clubs and, you know, go see animals in the parks as, as a wildlife, uh, you know, champion. But it wasn't connected to climate change at all. And, uh, but then I went to university to do a bachelor's in environmental science and management. And that is when we had an elective on climate change. So I kind of like started connecting the dots. I'm like, oh, we've been having massive floods in this community and people have been displaced. We've been having massive, you know, droughts. My mom has been laid off frequently from work. So I started connecting the dots, but then it was an elective. So we're like 60 people in my class yeah. and uh, only a few of us decided to do climate change because we're like, oh, it's for those countries, you know, those countries that caused it. We don't have a big deal to play in it. But for me, I was captivated. I was like, I now connect the dots. I can see why these things are happening as I grow up. So I decided to go and pursue a master's to understand more of climate change and mostly understand what I can do with my community, myself, the young people, my family. So when I went to do a master's in environmental change and management at the University of Oxford um, with a scholarship, uh, that is where I was actually, like I was already doing campaigns in Uganda, uh, but since then it kind of like built my capacity and knowledge to combine the activism I was doing in Uganda, but also the expertise that I've acquired, also having that kind of like global view of things, of the responsibilities of the global north versus the responsibility of global south, but also calling in like meeting people like you and, you know, everyone in the room. So, yeah, it could be a long story, but I'll stop there. <laughs> yeah. So it really goes all the way back to your childhood, but you didn't really realize the, no. the connection between the, the droughts that your, your mother and the, your area were experiencing. They uh, are still experiencing. Are still experiencing, yes. of course. Yes. Until you had that course that connected climate change with the actual... Yeah. Yeah, so your education and your own life experience kind of together Absolutely. inspired you. Absolutely. So, yeah. I think it's interesting because when you're telling your story, it's like you can't really see where it starts. For, or for you, it, it seems like it's always been there in a way. And I can kind of relate to that, even though I come from a totally different place. There's always been like this, some sort of um, knowledge about that something in our world is not going right. And, an, an, and a feeling of unease about that but not really until being older, realizing what tools do I have to actually do something about this? Absolutely. Actually, like during my undergraduate, I did um, research on climate knowledge, but also connecting it to food security in rural areas in Uganda. And I found like 90% of the people that I talked to, 
knew that something was off. Mm. They could see the droughts, they could see the pests increasing, they could see the heat getting, you know, unbelievably, you know, mm. serious, especially the older generation, they could tell you like, we knew we we're supposed to start planting today. Yeah. But now we have no idea. Actually, you think my grandmother had magic? Because she would tell you, like three months before, she would tell you it's going to rain on 14th March. And then it rains. And then I was like, I was always amazed. I'm like, how do you do that? She yeah. never told me the trick. <laughs> like, I used to keep thinking, we have magic in the family. We have magic. Yeah, just because that is how things were for generation and generations. Mm. They knew it was either minus one plus one day for the rain mm. season to begin. So they knew. But right now it's not possible. And we do not have the the technology to predict these seasons, no. predict the disasters and stuff. And that is why one point of my advocacy is more investment in early warning systems, mm. more like modern high-level accurate data to be produced for people to prepare. Because right now, in where I come from, in some of the people in the audience where they come from, is you just plant hoping like, Okay, let's see what is going to happen. Yeah. If luck finds you and the rain starts, well and good. Because sometimes the rain will start and all of a sudden it disappears and it's gone. The drought starts and then... Yeah. Yeah, so the 90% of the people say there was something off. It's either God punishing ours, you know? Mm. So, and the 5% were like, they have heard about climate change from different, like on the radio or something. Yeah. And the other 5%, five they were like, I just don't understand what's happening. We have no control over it. Which brings to what you, you know when I just finished saying, it's like the most affected people are the most unaware, but mm -hmm. the most experienced in terms of... Yes, they have the personal experience of the actual climate change. Some of them even know what to do. Yes, yeah. yes. So do you think that uh, to be able to tackle the climate crisis education and also the, the triple planetary crisis, we'll get more into that soon, but I wanted to ask first, like education is a key factor to, to uh, raise the knowledge in the public of uh, what's actually going on? Absolutely. I actually think like education, formal, informal and non-formal. Yes. We're talking about curriculum and then the other ways to engage, you know, people that are not in school. I think it's the missing fuel in the climate action. When we see uh, leaders, you know, make promises, political promises, leaders refuse, not even fail because they don't have resources, <laughs> but refuse yeah. to take this climate crisis as a crisis as it is, refuse to take it serious. I feel like it's because they lack that education. Mm -hmm. They lack that, um, that, not just awareness, but they lack that consciousness. Yes. So, and I feel like we still have a chance. We have the young generation, we have the children, we have the youth. Mm. If we sort out the education aspects and awareness rising, integrating, you know, there's the, there was a summit yesterday on education. And, but if we integrate climate action, environmentalism, planetary protection in the mm. curriculum, in every sector, mm whether you're working in, you know, food, 
or in humanitarian work, energy, this should be integrated in all yeah. aspects and de departments. And I think with that, we are not only like, sh we are forward thinking, like we, we are preparing the leaders, you know, those that will be the prime ministers and whoever of the future yes. at this time. So that next, when they're in office, they don't find it a surprise to be told, oh, loss and damage is happening. You need not to just make promises, mm -hmm. you need to actually deliver. It, mm -hmm. it won't be a hard time. It won't be a hard job to do explaining that. Yeah. Yeah. So I feel like, and that is why I've taken up that role myself. Like I've told people like knowing about climate change and knowing what, what the solutions are seems like a privilege when you go back to my community mm -hmm. because you find young people hustling to make ends meet, bring food on the table. And you're talking about climate change. That's not like yes. the urgent priority. Exactly. So, but I, who has had that privilege to know, have to integrate it in ways that mm -hmm. they can access, in ways that uh, connect to their life, but most importantly, in ways that help them in their lives. And that is why discussions on green jobs and green skills mm -hmm. are very important. I think that's a really interesting point. Also, how often groups that are the most affected, the most marginalized, do not have the uh, circumstances to be able to put time and effort into doing climate activism or climate advocacy because you're already dealing with the the acute consequences of that and uh, everyday life survival. Um, I think that's a really interesting and important point and also that you brought up that we don't, climate education should not only by, be directed to school students, we also have to educate our leaders, we have to educate our board rooms in every company in every country because climate change and climate adaption to the climate crisis has to happen on every level in every setting. Uh, I think that's a really, really important uh, point. But I wanted to get a bit more into, uh, so we talked about the climate crisis, but the triple planetary crisis has two more elements, right? Mm. Do you want to tell us a bit more about them and like how they're interlinked? Well, so actually like before, I don't know if I actually, I had, I was scribbling some notes. Uh, I was scribbling some notes and uh, I just wanted to like share that there are many planetary boundaries, right? They are nine, like yeah. at least those ones that are recognized. They could be more, or they could be even, you know, we have climate change, which is one of them, but we have the, you know, the biodiversity loss. And mm -hmm. you, we have the ozone depletion, mm -hmm. which I think there's a bit of progress in terms of, you know, closing the ozone hole. And that shows the power that humanity has mm -hmm. if we just decide to get serious, if we decide to treat a problem as the problem is, as it is. Mm -hmm. And we can see that progress, you know, from the Kyoto Protocol. And uh, the, then we have ocean acidification mm -hmm. and we have land use issues. We have water issues, uh, mm -hmm. the boundary, we have atmospheric aerosols, you know. But when you look at those, I think I've mentioned like eight or something. I may have yeah. gotten one which usually disturbs me, but That's they are totally all fine. interconnected, right? Mm -hmm. you, you talk about climate, it's connected with biodiversity, it's connected mm -hmm. with acidification, it's connected mm -hmm. with 
fresh water, so, you know, they're all interconnected. And that is why, like, it's really important to not just kind of, like, focus on one aspect, because the fact that they're interconnected, failure to correct the other boundaries, mm -hmm. then we're not going to make any serious progress on even the climate aspect. Mm -hmm. So, because I look at the CBD, the, the, uh, yeah. the, the biodiversity corp, right? Mm -hmm. There's very little focus on the biodiversity corp. And yes, I'm so much in the climate corp, but I feel like the biodiversity corp doesn't get the same attention, right? No. So it doesn't. So that is why, like, when I come to the triple planetary crisis, we're talking about biodiversity loss, we're talking about pollution, you know, and we're talking about climate. Yes. And pollution, I think we are so familiar, I think most of us here listening or in the room are familiar with pollution. Different, different types of pollution. Like in my country, for example, mm -hmm. the contexts are very different. In my country, uh, the most damages, the most pollution comes from, um, it's not industry because we don't have this in much, those many industries, right? But it comes from agriculture, mm -hmm. right? But also agriculture, mostly crop production. But also it's not as massive because we are not yet, you, we never used to use lots of fertilizers, mostly because our soils are, are fertile, but also the capacity to afford the fertilizers is generally low. And... Um, the animal sector is quite okay-ish. But when you go to Europe, for example... Mm -hmm. There's the, a different thing. There's a difference, exactly. Yes. And uh, we also have pollution from plastic. For example, in Uganda, massive plastic pollution problem. And that is why the, the, the treaty is very important. The global mm -hmm. treaty on plastic is very important. The global pact is very yes. important. And... I could talk about plastic forever, but <laughs> yes. we cannot recycle our way out of the plastic problem. We cannot just rely on recycling. We just no. need to change systems. We just need to change the way, the way we package, the way we consume, but also yes. what we use to package and what we use to consume. Something that can upset me a lot mm. is the, the thought that, oh, well, plastic straws are banned, so now we've solved the that issue, but exchanging one single-use product for another single-use product is not either the solution. It doesn't make sense. Because if we go into the biodiversity issue again, what are paper straws made of? Mm. Wood. In Sweden, about 70% of our land is uh, forest, mm. but on only 25% of that is uh, protected, the mm. and only 5% is actually old biodiversity rich forests so we are really at the verge of losing our last biodiverse forests in Sweden uh, and this is also an issue of education because most of the population thinks well we have so many trees in Sweden hmm. our forests must be great well they're not forests they're tree plantations exactly and I think that's also an important issue when it comes to pollution to remember that the answers are not that easy as just banning one thing will solve the problem. Absolutely. We have to rethink the whole system. Absolutely. And then, like, in the UK, 
where I'm studying at currently, like water, you look at the water, the rivers, they are highly polluted. And I find it really, it's a shame. Like mm -hmm. how you can have like countries, when we are back home, we think they're doing, you know, so well, they're doing <laughs> so good, but they don't really care about the noble issues. Like, you know, no. water, water quality. You look at the Thames, like the main source of, of um, the main source of water in the UK, highly polluted. Industries are pouring rubbish and effluents in these water sources. So I think pollution, I think pollution has different ways. There's air pollution, yes. air pollution coming from, you know, the energy, the dirty energy that we mm -hmm. continue that, you know, mostly Europe and the US and can like continue to rely on. Mm -hmm. We have so many fossil fuel lobbyists. I think we're, <laughs> yes. I've talked to one, you know, we're with Joy, Joy, I think we're together. Yeah. This guy, we're like, oh my God, you're a fossil fuel lobbyist. He was trying to sneak in how fossil fuels are great and stuff. And there are so many right now here at COP. And yes. um, pollution, I think we just need to change systems. Systems, and that comes with, it's not just a matter of saying we need to change systems. I think as young people, we need to demand for these system changes. We need to innovate and show them, hey, you're saying this is going to work. Here, we have our research. We have the data. It shows we can actually work. And I think that is why sometimes working with these politicians is very hard. And the business people, because all of the time they're thinking about profits over everything. So that is why we need to come up with, sometimes we need to show the solution like, trust me, this is going to work. Let's try it out, you know, and kind of like inspire them. Yeah. And uh, coming back to, um, to biodiversity loss, I think I'd already started that, the ecological crisis. I'd already talked about it when I was talking about, you know, the COP, the biodiversity COP. And you also talked about it when you're talking about forestry. I think without a diverse world, mm. this is not an this is not planet us. Without a world with, you know, the different species, whether they are insects or birds or fishes or human beings, that is not ours. Yes. So, and... Exactly. Without the biodiversity, or it doesn't matter if we keep below 1.5 because the systems will crash, the the ecosystems will crash without exactly. biological diversity. Exactly. So that is why I think when we are taking on the climate action agenda, mm. we need to integrate these major planetary mm. crises that are happening at the same time. Yes. Because with pollution increasing, we'll see more biodiversity loss. We see fish dying because of eating plastic, right? And... We see animals, like even domestic animals, cows and whatever, you know, dying from consuming water that is highly polluted with fertilizers and pesticides. Yes. We see uh, forests being cut in the Amazon mm -hmm. to plant soy, mm -hmm. you know. So I think it's really important to make these interconnections and not lose focus of the bigger picture and just end up concentrating on one small thing and then at the end of it, we don't actually yes. achieve that, achieve what we want. I had a question prepared, but we've already kind of discussed it a lot. Mm. That there, 
this kind of dividing these issues into very separate conferences, very separate silos, mm. might be a part of prolonging this problem because they're being tackled and addressed very separately. There's the CBD conference, like you mentioned, the conference on biological diversity. Uh, and it's seen as its own little thing. So when you're at the COP, they don't talk about biological diversity because there's the other conference for that. Do you think it might be a problem that these these areas are so divided in the the UN processes that they this might be uh, kind of increasing or making the problem continue that we've divided how we deal with them? Uh, yeah, that's, that's a really tricky and interesting question because, as you said, I mean, I'm not saying cops are bad, but I kind of have a problem with cops. Like, mm. we're going to do this cop, we finish it, everyone is going to go on holiday <laughs> in December, and then we start preparing for the next cop. Yeah. When will action happen? It's preparing, preparing after preparing. Mm. So... I don't know if it's a very wise thing to do to just keep preparing. I wish mm. there was a cop like, okay, we've done cops. How about this cop is going to be for sharing progress, for accountability. You, you committed for the last five cops. So let's see. Tell the world, show the world what you've done, what you've achieved. Yeah. I mean, we see a bit of that in terms of, you know, tracking the implementation of NDCs and stuff, but mm. I don't think that's really enough because those are just documents most of the times. And uh, in terms of, like, separating, like, the, C the, the CBD and the climate cops, um, they could be different. It's just that... You come at this climate cop, everything is the same. Mm. I don't know what you all feel. You said it's your first cop. Yeah. Right? This is my third cop. And what I had in Glasgow is still the same thing. So it's still the same thing yes. that I'm hearing. And maybe it's good for the new people that are coming. They're new to the climate space. But if you've been in the climate space for some time, you go to a different panel you go to another one. It's the same, same thing spoken mm. by different people, maybe using different accents and <laughs> You know, it's just the same. It's not yeah. bad, but I feel like we that means there's no progress. And start yeah, that means there's yeah. no progress. I really want to go somewhere where someone is telling me, I was at a very highlights event, which was not in COP, or not related so much to COP, but um, I was... It was in uh, outside this venue, and someone was sharing this inspiring project in Australia, and uh, in forest restoration. It was amazing to see. He wasn't even using any cop language or these political language. Loss and damage, because now you have to say loss and damage. You have to say community. You have to say like whether you're working with them or not. You have to like put that if you want, you know. Get the points. Yes, yeah. and to get the points and to get maybe funding or something. This yeah. person most made a presentation without mentioning loss and damage, without mentioning like any, any of those terms that you know are found in every climate space. I'm not saying terminologies are bad. They're okay, but it's just that we now keep concentrating on these 
terminologies and acting cool and stuff, mm-hmm. but then we're not really doing anything. So the importance is more what we do and not in what forms we do it. Exactly. Yeah. So I would be really interested in having a bit more of connecting these two cops, um, the climate one and the biodiversity one, trying to connect them more and trying to, because research is there. Mm. The evidence is there. It's massive that climate change is, you know, leading to biodiversity loss. But human activities are also, you know, yes, ex- excavating like, no, human activities are the leading cause of, you know, biodiversity loss. And human activities are the leading cause of climate crisis. And of pollution. Of pollution. Yes. And so that is why more coordination is needed. Uh, we cannot just have, oh, the UNFCCC, and then we have the, you know, everyone yeah. just doing their own silos, yeah. and we just need to get back to the bigger picture, I guess. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And I think that leads us to a great spot for a final question. Um, so we've talked about the triple planetary crisis, a bit about climate change, a bit about pollution and biodiversity loss, uh, and a bit about some other stuff too. But I would say, so to continue on this focus on action, do you have one concrete thing you would like to see uh, world leaders adopt and actually carry out to to come closer to these goals that we all know? Um, I could talk a lot about that, but I, know. I have different, I have different but- Context. Give us one one thing <laughs> oh, that you think is um, very important. I really think this does, this sounds cliche, and I think I've already <laughs> talked about it. But I think if each world leader made a commitment, they're like, mm. "I am going," because I work mostly on migration-related issues and restoration, mm-hmm. like everything around that. If someone came and they're like, okay, I'm, I've made a commitment, all these documents we are doing are great, fine, but I am going to implement this project at the grassroots in this community. Mm-hmm. The world is hearing, follow on from this year mm-hmm. by the next COP. This is what I would have achieved, mm-hmm. you know? I'm going to restore this forest. Let's say I'll talk about, I'm, I'm doing some work with, uh, in Ghana, um, landscape restoration, and we are combining natural forest restoration and agroforestry, but mostly doing uh, fruit trees. So such community are like, you know, connected to real action. Mm-hmm. On the community level. On the community level, where real action matters, where real impact is where mm-hmm. communities are actually on the front line. So I think that would make me more excited. And for the countries that are committing, including the Nordic countries, because we're in the Nordic pavilion, that are committing, uh, you know, the loss and damage fund, their contributions, I would really be more interested in them com- actually making a community like, by next year, would have delivered this, you know, to the fund. Mm-hmm. Because they're saying, we're giving 100 million. Like, when? When are we receiving it? And, you know, and because they may say 100 million is for the next 20 years. And we yeah. don't know the actual. So I want, like, different commitments from different 
I don't want everyone to commit to one like thing. No. I want the the difference. So I want the country to come and commit. They're like, we are going to increase our renewable energy mixed by this percentage before we come yes. back to the next COP. So I want those actionable commitments because they're the ones that are giving like pop rather yes. than saying, oh, we're going to do these. Is it, are we phasing? I'm not sure if that word is going to even appear this time. Mm. But um, actionable commitments are the ones that I'm looking for. I think that's a great way to end this. And I totally agree. Actionable actionable yes. commitments <laughs> mm. that are actually realized and carried out in practice. Mm. I would say that's my number one hope and oh. demand too, mm. that if world leaders just start doing what they've already promised to do for so long, we would get so much further than just getting stuck in these negotiations year after year after year. Mm. Promise after promise, yes. empty after empty so promise. So time to get to work and stop talking. Yes. Do you want to organize your own Nordic Talks event? Then check out nordictalks.com slash producer. I'm Josefine Falkwarts. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.